Mind games, poker faces, madman theory. Deterrence is an ancient concept that is once again front and centre of our thinking as we wrestle with intensifying strategic competition. Welcome to the Aspie Podcast. I'm David Rowe, and I'm very pleased to introduce a special episode recorded on the sidelines of Aspie's recent Disruption and Deterrence Conference. For this episode, Beck Shrimpton talks to Brad Roberts, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for Nuclear and Missile Defence Policy, now Director of the Centre for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Deterrence is about influencing a potential adversary's calculation of the risks and benefits of action and inaction. But beneath that, there are layers and layers of move and countermove. Brad, fortunately, has layers and layers of wisdom on the subject, which Beck skillfully unpeels. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Dr. Brad Roberts, welcome to the Aspie podcast. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. I'm particularly delighted to have you here because I, I met you some, oh, maybe eight years ago now, I think, getting close to nine, mm-hmm. uh, in my time in the United States when I was posted to the embassy. It was some of the most rewarding, challenging and interesting conversations that I had and it is entirely your fault that I became obsessed with deterrence and and these kinds of ideas that have now come to the fore in a way that I felt were important back then but others finally agree with me now, which is fantastic. Our 2023 Defence Strategic Review, of course, has put deterrence front and centre of Australian strategy and this is a shift while deter, shape and respond have always been key elements of our defence strategy, framing our strategy as one of deterrence is, is quite new. Uh, and so I want to take this opportunity to, to dig into one of the very best minds, really help us understand what does this mean? What is deterrence? What are the basic principles, ideas, concepts behind this that we need to be literate in, alert to, understand how they work together and how do we get this right from an Australian perspective because, you know, a deterrence strategy is really not something we have taken that seriously beyond the extended deterrence assurances that we've enjoyed through our alliance with the United States. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, Brad, may I ask you, what are the key characteristics of deterrence and can you talk about the spectrum of deterrence. Perhaps if we stick to the military realm for now, although let's talk about how it does interact with others, that that spectrum of activities that do sit on a deterrence, within a deterrence framework. Well, the starting point is to disassociate nuclear from deterrence. For many people, these are synonymous terms, but in fact, let's separate out and talk about deterrence unto itself first. Excellent. And the process of trying to influence an adversary by influencing their calculus of the costs, well, first off, influencing the calculus of the benefits and the costs and the risks of different courses of action, including the course of inaction. Yep. And to influence their perception of the benefits of a different course of action, we think of deterrence by denial. We seek to deny their action, uh, but to influence them through cost imposition uh, and risk imposition, which are two different things, yes. quite the same. Yes. This is uh, the alternative strategy, and 
the general theory of deterrence is that, that deterrence requires both, the ability to impose cost and risk uh, and the ability to deny benefits. Excellent. What is important in terms of credibility, capability, and uh, in your excellent book, which I never miss an opportunity to give a shout out to the case for US nuclear weapons in the 21st century, just a central read for anyone thinking about any any kind of uh, deterrence. You also talk about restraint, but can you just talk about these ideas and, and why they matter to deterrence? Well, thank you for the kind words about my book. I'm glad that it's still in, in, in favor and I'm sorry that the world is one in which we need to be these, these topics, but that's, that's the way it is. The concepts of credibility, capability, uh, and, and restraint, if I make a threat to you and you, you simply can dismiss it because it seems to you to be so utterly irrational, I have no credibility in expressing the threat to you. Yep. My behaviors need to have aligned with the threat I'm making so that you look at me and think, well, this guy could do this mm-hmm. if, if, it, if I cross that red line. And credibility is by in the nuclear realm because you're making a promise to act in certain ways when you're under the threat of the most dire consequences for your vital national interests. The capabilities are a part of establishing credibility. If you don't have the means to do what you threaten to do, Mm -hmm. then you can be dismissed. And if you don't invest in your capabilities with the necessary resources, including leadership and attention, you may have the capabilities in being, but not the credibility of a threat. And here we have the powerful example of the late 1930s in Pearl Harbor where it was clear that the democracies in both Europe and the Pacific had the means to defend themselves, but they were seen by leaders in adversarial capitals as having been so derelict in defending their interests that they concluded the democracies would not act if their interests were attacked. And so the means of deterrence were there, but the credibility of the threat was not. And in today's world, we have to worry about these considerations again. President Putin marched into Ukraine despite a a good deal of persuasion or or efforts to persuade him not to do so. Mm -hmm. That he dismissed, he didn't expect to pay a large cost. He didn't expect to run much risk because he sees not respond for a decade to his insults to our interests of various kinds, or at least not respond in a decisive manner. Mm -hmm. And so I'm worried in today's landscape about the possibility that our adversaries will conclude that despite our many strengths and our physical means to defend ourselves and and attack if attacked, that we may have a weak moment in deterrence because we've lost some credibility. So what does make for good deterrence strategy, clearly those elements that you've talked about and and, demonstrating credibility, capability, resolve, which has elements of will as well as restraint. But I'm thinking here in, in your example that you spoke to, what you really highlighted there is just how important it is 
to understand that psychological element, to understand how important it is to have an of the target of your deterrence efforts. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that as you um, – and, I'd, and I'd, I'd love for you to talk about tailoring. What, why, why is it important that you have calibrated deterrence strategies that are tailored to specific problem sets and specific challenges and not just a seek to have a general kind of – deterrent. Right. Well, because in, sh- in shorthand, one size, because adversarial leaders have particular interests, particular ambitions, and particular capabilities. And deterrence isn't something you do in the abstract. Deterrence is something you do in the specific. You want to deter a specific actor from undertaking a specific action with a specific capability. And you hope to do that by putting at risk the things they value. And leaders don't all value the same things. We didn't believe that Saddam Hussein was deterrable by the usual means because we didn't think he valued He was killing his people in large numbers. So to threaten to hold at risk his population would have given us no deterrence leverage at all. Other leaders may greatly value their populations, but not value so much parts of their military infrastructure. So you need to be able to tailor your capabilities and tailor your strategy to go after the unique features of and to understand the choices that they're facing and to try to shape their choices. And that's particularly hard to do, I guess, if if you're thinking of deterring an actor like China, it proved to be very difficult to do uh, in deterring Putin, mm-hmm. for example, and, and, and some of that uh, has been put down to intelligence failure, but it's, is it intelligence failure or is it imagination failure? How, how can we do better on that front, Brad, other than understanding and recognizing not mirror image and we need to, to really have a good picture of our adversary, how can we actually do better on that front than we've done in the past and what might that mean? if we're trying to deter someone like Xi Jinping? Well, first of all, I think we, we can do better, but we can't be 100% perfect. Yep. Deterrence isn't fully reliable. Yep. We may be able to raise costs. Or the costs. We may be able to reduce the benefits, but the cost of inaction may still be so compelling to the enemy that they must act in some way. They, they roll the dice. Yep. Deterrence isn't fully reliable. We improve our odds of success by being diligent and smart, by paying attention. The Russians and Chinese have told us a great deal about how they think about war with us because it's in their interest that we be deterred. Yep. We, we didn't pay much attention because we were engaged in the global war on terror and two long counterinsurgencies in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. So one, there's a matter of paying attention, and that requires that politicians put a focus on a problem and stay focused on it. Yep. And then there is the problem of breaking through groupthink. We tend to look at the world in, with a set of assumptions that we share within our expert community. There was an excellent study done of the strategic surprise at Pearl Harbor. What explained the surprise? Done by Roberta Wollstetter with a forward to the book by Thomas Schelling. And Schelling said, what this study shows 
is not that people were asleep at the switch in Washington or they'd been drinking too many Mai Tais on Waikiki Beach, but it was a failure of imagination. Mm. In the 1930s, the community of people that thought about the problems in the security environment were persuaded that some scenarios were scenarios, the less plausible scenarios came to be seen as impossible and therefore not worthy of attention. A failure of imagination. And the world constantly surprises us. That's a failure of our imagination. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's not an argument for worst casing everything. Yes. But it's, it's an argument for testing the assumptions that underpin our assessments and projections. Absolutely. What's a good way to do that? to test assumptions and, and, and push our policy uh, frameworks. I mean, I personally have taken part in a number of, of war games, some, some with you, that they can be, in my view, very powerful. Do you agree war games is, are, are one way to do that and are there, are there others? Well, I was going to argue red teaming. Yes, okay. But to use war gaming to this effect, war, war gaming has to go through something of a revolution. Wargaming is generally a methodology that's been tailored to the operational level of war. Yes, yes. And in a rather unscientific method, it's most and not very analytical in character. The, the need we have today is to understand the strategic dynamics in a conflict with adversaries armed with nuclear weapons yes. rather than the operational level of war. And we need to work together as a community, not eight people in a closed room with a board in front of them, but communities of experts connecting and thinking through risks and decision trees and, and all of that. It's to adapt, and it is adapting in that direction. Excellent. Yes, wargaming is one excellent way to test assumptions and, and break down groupthink. I think it's it's really an important gap that you've just highlighted there and and, and I think you're, you're right in, in my experience with a number of games, many of them, if not almost all, have been at that operational level of war, thinking about capabilities and concepts and applying and, and, and working together and have been at that strategic and the policy level, I guess. Or what has been really interesting is that a game has played out over four or five days and had several evolutions um, largely at the operational level and then has been brought to a policy committee, if you like. And you have a distinct difference between where the operators think they've got the evidence and the case right. and they know that it's quite clear in their minds the decision-makers to make, but policymakers often do not make those decisions and are not comfortable with the information that they have and do not believe necessarily in the same way or see things in the same way. So I think that's a... That's a really important distinction that we get to that strategic level of wargaming. That's something I'll think more about and hopefully talk to you more about. Good. You touched on something else just there that I, I want to pull on the thread of, and that's the relationship between deterrence and war fighting. And these are distinct but very interrelated activities. Is that right? Can you talk about how those two things together and, and how they are different and yet how they are similar or overlap? Sure. And this is a place where the distinction between conventional and nuclear is very important. Uh, At the conventional level of war, there's a a widespread assumption that so long as you have plans and capabilities in place, you have deterrence in place. But Pearl Harbor 1941 shows that that's not how that works. 
as we've already spoken about, the plans need to be tailored to address the particular challenges that would come that our enemies might undertake. So at the conventional level of war, a warfighting capability doesn't automatically translate into a deterrence capability. Deterrence needs to be tailored. At the nuclear level of war, it's highly debatable whether there is such a thing as viable nuclear warfighting, meaning once the nuclear lost and vital interests come into direct risk, it's very difficult to conceive of the circumstance in which war termination occurs immediately and at a low level of damage. Now, we, we, we need to have a theory of how that would work. Mm-hmm. We, we need to have some notion of how, if we have to cross that threshold, better off having done so than not, because it will have persuaded the other guy to stop the nuclear aggression that, that he initiated. That requires some limited ability to fight in a nuclear context. We face enemies today who seem unlikely to cross the nuclear threshold and unleash all of their nuclear potential. Rather, their strategies are about blackmail, brinksmanship, mm-hmm. and limited employment of nuclear weapons in order to lend credibility to the blackmail and brinksmanship and coercion in which they're engaged. Yeah. And we need to not be paralyzed by their nuclear employment, and we must be able to continue to prosecute the conventional level of war and counter-escalate on a limited basis if that's deemed useful. So an all-out nuclear warfighting plan is probably something the Russians have. Russian leaders have boasted about building, quote, a nuclear scalpel for every military problem in Europe. And they have thousands of nuclear weapons deployed with something like 30 delivery systems capable of reaching targets. And they have a nuclear warfighting doctrine. We don't. We have a nuclear deterrence doctrine. Yeah. Interesting. And it does put into stark relief some of the decisions facing European leaders and I guess some of the decisions that they're all grappling with within NATO and as individual nations, of course. I have a couple more questions for you. As we think about deterrence, it is easy to think about the kinds of capabilities that do impose cost and that do threaten and that do perhaps lend credibility to a deterrence theory. But reveal and conceal is something that is talked about in deterrence as well. That, you know, while it's important to demonstrate capability and demonstrate resolve, you also don't want to tell your adversary, absolutely everything about what you've got, right? So can you talk about how that reveal, conceal, calculation plays in, why that's important? And I might have to come back to this as a separate question, but very often I think in the conversation here is the role of missile defence and defensive capabilities and resilience. It's particularly important, obviously, as we think about denying benefits, but can we, t- can we talk a little bit about missile defence there? And I think there's some interesting ideas around reveal and conceal in that capability area as well. Indeed. Well, briefly on missile defense, it's, it's a key part of American strategic thought after the Cold War. 
and we see it as playing a very important role in negating the course of potential of North Korean and potentially Iranian BMs. We've seen it as having no role at all in the relationship with Russia and China, but we've had to pause and think about that with the growth in the theater missile forces of both and then the introduction of hypersonic non-nuclear capabilities, which could be very useful to Russia and China in attacking our command and control systems and paralyzing us early in a war. And so some protection against them might be useful. So defenses will play an important role. Conceal, reveal. It makes a lot of sense. If an adversary attacks us because he's miscalculated our resolve, and you can then counter by displaying to that adversary some significantly unexpected cost, if he continues to prosecute the war. This is very good for deterrence. But I'm skeptical. The world in which we face two major powers as rivals, but who are aligned with each other, who have worked very hard to penetrate our secrets, I'm not sure what war-winning advantage might be left that's concealed it could be revealed in time of crisis and war. And I'm worried that, as I've already suggested, yeah. that leaders in Moscow and Beijing calculate that the democracies don't have the resolve to defend their interests. And keeping capabilities concealed reinforces that misperception. I believe it is a misperception and a dangerous one. Yep. I'd, I'd rather reveal more than conceal more at this stage in our history. That's very interesting. Great, thank you. You also talk in your book about the importance of and the role of declaratory policy and strategic communications. And I think you've just made pretty clear why you think that's important and uh, and how that's important. I guess I'm, I'll have to make this my final question to you, but as an American sitting here, how can we effectively develop our thinking to a, a greater depth around deterrence capability? Most importantly, how and why should we work with the U.S. to do that? Well, the why is first and foremost because we have an alliance. And the, the strategies of our adversaries are about breaking our alliances. And if we don't have a, a common response to this challenge, we will, we will fall down. The how goes back to the beginning where, where, where you, you commented on our longstanding collaboration at the, at the conference table in Livermore, California. Mm. The, the how begins with doing the homework together. Rus Russia and China and North Korea, beginning in the mid-1990s, focused on the new problem that we bring to them, so to speak. Yeah. And they didn't have money. They didn't have military capability. They didn't have military technology. But what did they have in abundance? Smart people. And they spent approximately 15 to 20 years thinking about the problem that we present to them and putting out new concepts and then aligning capabilities with concepts. And now we see in the field these capabilities. To, to poor effect in Russia's case, of course. Yeah. But we're starting our homework phase. We're playing catch-up. Yep. 
the U.S. and its allies. And we will climb the ladder if we attempt to do so together. That's a fabulous call to action. It's a, it's a great r- reminder of, of the contribution that think tanks and that those outside of you know, official channels can make to help inform policy making. It's a really important job. It's one that you've done ably and with great influence. I've seen that up close and and personally with uh, the likes of Strategic Command and, and others. So I'm really keen to get stuck into that homework again and, and, and keep it going. Or to many more conversations with you. Dr. Roberts, thank you for joining us on the ASPE podcast today. I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you, Beck. It's been a great pleasure and honour to be here and I look forward to continued collaboration. That's all we have this week. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with another episode soon.